Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. Hoover the Humanitarian Today, Herbert Hoover is remembered as the president of the Great Depression. The president blamed for not doing enough to relieve the great distress caused by that economic crisis. As such, he is compared rather unfavorably to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the man who succeeded him and excelled in a well-crafted media campaign that cast him as comforter-in-chief. In rankings of American presidents today, Hoover usually falls between 31 and 34, which places him in the bottom tier of American presidents. Much of this ranking comes from the fact that many Americans see his leadership during the Great Depression as incompetent and unsympathetic to the plight of millions. But was Hoover really disinterested in the sufferings of those in need? Was he a terrible administrator? A month before the Great Depression, no one would have thought so. Hoover was a giant, regarded internationally as a talented administrator and as America's great humanitarian. And it was World War I that gave him these credentials. In August 1914, a soon-to-be 40-year-old Herbert Hoover was working in his London office. A self-made man who had grown up shuttled from relative to relative, at this time, Hoover was a millionaire and the director of 18 mining and financial companies with a total of 100,000 employees on his payroll. He was also blessed with a happy home life. This idyllic world would have insulated him from the hardships of the Great War, but as he surveyed London in the days after war had been declared, he was restless. As he told a friend at one point, a man who hadn't made his fortune by age 40 wasn't worth much. But he also acknowledged money wasn't everything. Having made himself a millionaire, he was now looking for a change, for another calling. With war engulfing Europe, he would soon leave the world of business and embark on a career of public service. The crisis of war had begun, but a separate American crisis had also begun in Europe that August. The war had started at the height of the tourist season, and as a result, hundreds of thousands of American tourists suddenly found themselves stranded in Europe. To deal with the war crisis, many European banks declared bank holidays, and many merchants were no longer eager to cash the traveler's checks carried by American tourists. Transportation was also a problem. Trains in many of the most popular destinations across Europe had been requisitioned by mobilizing armies, and transatlantic passage was nearly impossible. Thousands of Americans were fleeing the continent by whatever means available and making their way to London. On arrival, most were stranded with little to no financial resources. To add to their nightmare, many had also left their luggage behind in their haste to depart the continent. Rich or poor, the paralysis of Europe's tourist infrastructure and the red tape of wartime governments and economies was causing great difficulties. The first week of August, 2,000 stranded tourists met at the Waldorf Hotel in London to establish an American Citizens Committee, 
to petition the U.S. government for aid, to lobby for credit lines to be restored, to arrange hotel accommodations, and to investigate lost luggage claims. Some relief was available. On August 4th, the American Express Company reopened its doors, and in one day, 6,000 individuals were able to receive $200,000 in cash. Despite these proactive measures, however, more and more tourists flooded into London every day, leading to an increasingly chaotic situation. As the crisis continued to play out, Herbert Hoover presented himself at the American Consulate in London's financial district and offered his services. There is debate as to whether he was asked for help or whether he just showed up and offered assistance. But either way, as he later explained, this is how he got started on the slippery slope of public service. His offer to help was immediately accepted, and he went to work setting up an office in the consulate. He also gathered all the cash he could find at his office, took donations from his associates, and even called his wife to request the 100 pounds in cash he had at their home. By afternoon, he had started lending money. These were small, unsecured loans at no interest. By evening, he had provided 300 Americans, with no other means, a loan that would enable them to eat and lodge for a little while longer. He also opened up a tourist bureau to assist the stranded and helped to create a bank to provide emergency credit. Hoover's wife, Lou Henry, also got involved. Noticing the plight of unaccompanied women and women with children, Mrs. Hoover immediately set up a special commission to aid women and children. Her commission provided the weary travelers with secondhand clothes, safe accommodations, money, and group excursions to public museums around London. Soon, conditions began to improve. Acting quickly, the U.S. Congress passed a measure to send $2.5 million in relief to help the stranded Americans. This gold was sent aboard the American cruiser Tennessee, and word of its coming helped to loosen credit restrictions for an ever-increasing number of tourists. Hoover, meanwhile, working with various contacts in the American embassy, helped to charter neutral steamers to take many of the stranded back to the United States. Over the next months, Hoover supervised an army of hundreds of volunteers, oversaw the transfer and dispersal of millions of dollars, and helped more than 120,000 Americans return home. One million dollars was loaned on simple IOUs or via personal checks. In the end, to the astonishment of many, only $300 of the unsecured loans was lost. By October 1914, the crisis had abated. As Hoover and his family were preparing to leave for America themselves, he was visited by the American ambassador in London. Ambassador Walter Hines Page had worked closely with Hoover during the tourist crisis and had recently been approached by the Belgian ambassador for humanitarian assistance. Despite its dogged resistance, Belgium had quickly been overrun as the German army executed the opening phase of the Schlieffen Plan. After the First Battle of the Marne in September 1914, stalemates settled over the Western Front, leaving up to 95% of the tiny nation occupied by German forces. For Belgium, this stalemate was a disaster. A highly industrialized nation, Belgium depended heavily on foreign imports for three-quarters of its food. Germany refused to feed the population of Belgium, 
arguing that Germany did not have a food supply enough for its own troops and civilian population, and that Belgium should continue to import the food it required. At the same time, the British had a naval blockade around Belgium's ports because of the German occupation. The British position was clear. Germany should feed the country it had occupied. Britain would make no exceptions for imports, arguing that Germany would probably confiscate any food anyways. With Belgian citizens facing starvation, American Ambassador Page was looking to Hoover for help. For several days as his family readied to leave London, Hoover discussed Belgium's growing humanitarian crisis with Ambassador Page and Belgian representatives. He felt compelled to render aid, but knew that it would cost him personally, professionally, and financially. Despite the cost, however, on the fourth day, he announced at breakfast, well, let the fortune go to hell. With that, he committed himself to leading the effort to relieve the food crisis in Belgium. His family left London as planned, and for the next years, Hoover's life would be totally consumed by the effort to feed millions of civilians in war-torn Europe. He moved quickly to remedy the crisis. After weeks of negotiations, on October 22nd, Hoover gained diplomatic recognition for the newly formed CRB, or Commission for Relief in Belgium. This organization would be neutral, and it had permission from both sides to procure and distribute food to the Belgian population. Germany promised not to requisition the food, and the British agreed to let the food through its blockade. Within a few months, the CRB had built what a British official called a piratical state organized for benevolence. Today, NGOs and non-state actors are common sites on the international stage. During World War I, however, they were more of an anomaly, and it took all of Hoover's administrative talent and networking to organize a successful relief campaign. As Hoover later explained, the CRB possessed some of the attributes of a government. It had its own flag, it negotiated treaties with warring European powers, and its leaders parlayed regularly with diplomats and, and cabinet ministers in several countries. It even had a leader who enjoyed price controls and controls over agricultural production. But as Hoover later admitted, the knowledge that we would have to go on for four years to find a billion dollars to transport five million tons of concentrated food, to administer rationing, to contend with combatant governments and with world shortages of food and ships, was mercifully hidden from us at the beginning. It was challenging work, but Hoover's abilities were quickly realized. Months after the organization of the CRB, Ambassador Page wrote to President Woodrow Wilson, Life is worth more, too, for knowing Hoover. But for him, Belgium would now be starved. Soon the CRB also added northern France to its responsibilities. On a daily basis, the organization was tasked with raising money around the world. Initially, this was through charities, although as the war dragged on, Allied governments began to subsidize the effort. With the collected donations, the CRB then had to purchase food from North and South America and Australia, then shipped these goods thousands of miles to Europe. Soon the CRB had a mini-fleet of vessels that navigated the blockade and unloaded their goods at the neutral Dutch port of Rotterdam. From Rotterdam, the cargo was then sent via canal to Belgium. 
The food was still not ready for distribution, however. The raw import still had to be prepared for consumption. This meant overseeing the processing of food in mills, dairies, and bakeries. When this was complete, the final products had to be distributed to the starving populations over 20,000 square miles of territory. Just sending the food to each locale was not enough, however. As part of the diplomatic agreement that allowed the CRB to operate, the CRB had to verify that civilians were receiving their ration of food. To do this, Hoover ended up running a network of more than 40,000 Belgian volunteers, mostly local business leaders, who documented and verified the equitable distribution of food. As the war continued into 1917, historians estimate that roughly 5 million people in Belgium alone were virtually destitute. Hoover reported that the CRB was assisting at least half of the Belgian population. Aware that the CRB could only do so much, he worked to help augment thousands of existing charities within Belgium. Hoover saw these local groups as key to solving some of the more local humanitarian problems that went beyond basic food needs. In 1917, he estimated that around 2.7 million people were receiving aid from these local charities. The security of women and children was of particular interest to Hoover. Seeing them as the most vulnerable of the non combatants, he made them a priority. By late 1916, three quarters of Belgian children were attending daily lunches provided by the CRB. Hoover explained that his mission was to maintain the laughter of the children, not to dry their tears. When it came to women, Hoover made extra rations for pregnant and nursing women standard. Realizing that the blockade of Belgium was also depriving 40,000 female lace workers of the raw materials they needed to make a living, Hoover arranged for the CRB to import these materials and then for the CRB to export the finished products to open markets overseas. Some scholars believe this action saved Belgium's lace industry, but more importantly at the time, it kept tens of thousands of women employed and self sufficient throughout the war. Although far from his family and tired of the constant negotiating with the Allied and Central Powers, Hoover remained motivated throughout the war. He told friends that it was the image of long lines of anxious people standing outside of relief stations that kept him from returning to America in the early years of the war. On occasion, he did threaten to resign, but this was usually a tactic to pressure one side or the other to cooperate with the CRB. The ploy always worked. Neither the Allied or Central Powers wanted to lose the PR war by tangling too hard with Hoover. From the beginning of the war, the plight of Belgium had been much publicized. People around the world knew what the CRB was doing and that Hoover was the man pulling it all together. Some admirers even referred to him as the Napoleon of Mercy. Through long years of war, the CRB fed up to 11 million people. Hoover personally oversaw nearly $1 billion in aid money, and his efficient administration was praised for keeping the administrative costs of the organization below 0.5%. Studies done at the end of the war found that Belgian children, who had received a supplementary lunch each day from the CRB, were found to be healthier after the war than before the war. This success prompted lunch programs to be introduced in American schools in later years. When the United States entered the war in 
Hoover finally returned home to head the United States Food Administration under President Wilson. Hoover strongly believed that food produced by the United States would be a key factor in winning the war. Statistically, one American ship could supply more food to Europe than two ships from South America or four from Australia. The only problem was that U-boats and blockades were making it more difficult to get cargo into European ports. To improve the odds of cargo reaching its destination, Hoover started a public information campaign to encourage households to reduce waste and the amount of food they consumed. This led to a 15% drop in the amount of food consumed by Americans, and that, combined with cooperation from American farmers, enabled the United States to send triple the amount of ships to Europe. This leveled the odds of food reaching its intended destination. As more and more food reached the continent, a far-sighted Hoover also gradually built up a food surplus in Europe to combat potential post-war food shortages. The U.S. Food Administration's slogan was "Food will win the war," and by November 1918, it had played its part in the Allied victory. In 1919, President Wilson sent Hoover back to Europe to lead the American Relief Administration. Over the next year, Hoover oversaw food relief programs for 300 million people in 21 countries throughout Europe and the Middle East. With a budget of around 100 million dollars, Hoover threw himself into this new task. He was frustrated early on, however, when restrictions were placed on this funding. An amendment to the appropriations bill prohibited Hoover from using any of the money to feed civilians in enemy countries. Hoover daily protested this restriction at the Paris Peace Conference, but the U.S. Congress and many of the Allies were firm. Germany was to get no food aid until it agreed to the Allied peace terms. Months later, with reports of famine and starvation in Germany, Hoover acted. He sent shipments of food intended for other destinations to German ports. In the resulting firestorm, President Wilson supported him. Forcing the Allied governments to consent to food shipments to Germany, responding to his critics, Hoover made it clear: "We do not kick a man in the stomach after we have licked him. We have not been fighting women and children, and we are not beginning now." Today, historians estimate that tens of thousands of people in Germany were saved from starvation due to this food relief. By 1918, a grateful Belgium and indeed many other European nations wanted to shower Hoover with honors. Believing that foreign honors and orders were undemocratic, Hoover refused to accept any of these traditional awards. To accommodate the American, Belgium's King Albert I created a special order just for Hoover, entitled "Friend of the Belgian People." Hoover accepted this unique title and continued to maintain his ties with the country. With the war over, the CRB had a surplus of thirty-five million dollars. With Hoover's support, eighteen million dollars of this was given outright to libraries and education institutions throughout Belgium. The remainder of the money was then given to two foundations, one in the United States and one in Belgium, for the purpose of encouraging Belgian-American cultural ties. For most men of his age, his work organizing the CRB and American food relief would have been the crowning achievements of his life. Instead, it turned out just to be the prologue of his public service career.
Today, it seems odd for someone to be elected president of the United States without ever holding an elected office or serving in a position of leadership in the military. But that is exactly what happened with Hoover. As the United States entered the world scene during the war, so too did Hoover. Even after the war, he loomed large in the minds of many Americans. With decades of administrative and public service on his record, when he ran for president of the United States in 1928, he easily won 58 percent of the vote. Despite his earlier successes, four years later he would leave the presidency on the heels of the Bonus March and the Great Depression. These are the defining events that have largely shaped his legacy today. While his reputation in America suffered in the wake of the Great Depression, Hoover remained a much loved and respected figure internationally. As an ex-president, he continued to be active in philanthropy, and when World War II broke out in Europe in the late 1930s, he was once again called on to lend his expertise to massive food relief programs. He worked in this capacity until Pearl Harbor in 1941. Interestingly, up to this point, he had received a great deal of cooperation from Nazi Germany in helping to feed civilians in occupied countries. Many German soldiers and leaders remembered being fed by organizations he managed after World War I. When the war ended in Europe in May of 1945, President Harry S. Truman called upon Hoover to serve as the advisor for America's food relief programs on the war-torn continent. The next year, as famine erupted around the world, Truman asked the 71-year-old former president to figure out a strategy to combat global food shortages. It wasn't just a mercy mission. As far as Truman and the Joint Chiefs were concerned, global food shortages were a potential source of instability and conflict. Over the next three months, Hoover traveled 51,000 miles and visited 38 countries. When he came back to the United States, he gave Truman a clear picture of what regions needed immediate American aid. Truman acted on this intelligence and is credited with saving millions of lives during this global crisis. By his death in 1964, Hoover had spent 50 years in public service. As he wrote during World War I, "There is little importance to men's lives except the accomplishments they leave to posterity. What a man accomplishes is of many categories and of many points of view. Moral influence, example, leadership, and thought and inspiration are difficult to measure, to prove, to treasure." And the proportion of success to be attributed to their effort is always indeterminate. In the origination or administration of tangible institutions or constructive works, men's parts can be more clearly defined. When all is said and done, accomplishment is all that counts. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams@norfolk.gov.